This month marks one of the darkest anniversaries in American history. On January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court handed down the, the Roe versus Wade decision. That was 48 years ago. That, with another case, Doe versus Barton, effectively it legalized abortion on demand in the United States. And it's estimated that in those years, some 62 million unborn Americans lost their lives. When we think about that number, it's hard to, to grasp. Albert Moeller says it this way, he says, it's hard to think in, in numbers on this scale, 62 million missing Americans, 62 million Americans who would have been alive from 1973 to the present if they had, been, if they had not been aborted in the womb. That's 62 million workers, 62 million people going to Little League games, going to church, building houses, living in communities, just experiencing life as image bearers of God. 62 million people missing. We hear about abortion frequently. It has become a, a talking point of both political parties. One party is by and large against it. The other believes it's a fundamental right of women and there are people polarized on each side of this debate. We hear about it so often that I think we've, we've become radically desensitized to it when abortion becomes more about politics and less about murder than there is a problem. And I, and I think there's a question here, and, and the question is, is how did we get here, right? As a, as a country, we see such a, a cavalier attitude toward abortion in the, the world around us, and, and even uh, ourselves, we've become uh, desensitized to it as well. But as Christians, we, we come to our senses and we ask, how has all of this become thinkable? Because quite literally, we're living in the midst of, of a holocaust. And of course, when we speak of a holocaust, we think of uh, Nazi Germany, and rightly so, it was horrific. Uh, I watched a, a movie not long ago called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Some of you have heard of that, you've read the book. It's quite a, a story that takes place during the, the Jewish Holocaust. The movie is about a, a young boy that lives outside of a, a concentration camp and, and makes friends with a, a Jewish boy inside of the fences. And the little German boy can't understand or grasp what is going on. To suggest that those people inside the work camp were not people didn't make sense to the boy and the family there lived right by the camp and, and hid what was going on. They lived like things were normal. And to do that, they had to believe that those people inside of those walls were not people. All the while, there, will be, there, will be, there were people that were being killed right there, right by their house. They would see the, the smoke from the burned bodies that were going up every once in a while. And we recognize when we watch a movie like this that that kind of senseless slaughter cannot and should not ever be justified. How did we 
get here. R.C. Sproul blamed it on the church. He said, quote, the organized church more than any other institution apart from the Supreme Court has neglected its duty to inform the public conscience about abortion. John Piper, even more specifically, laid the blame at the feet of pastors when he said, the cowardice of some pastors when it comes to preaching against abortion appalls me. Many treat the dismemberment of unborn humans as an untouchable issue on par with partisan politics. Some have bought into the incredible notion that they can be personally pro-life but publicly pro-choice or non-committal. The law of our land is immoral and it is unjust. And that truth should be declared from tens of thousands of pulpits in America, end quote. Some might say, well, even if pastors did rise up in church and preach on this issue, wouldn't these pastors just, by and large, be preaching to the choir? The people that come to church are going to be against abortion, by and large. But the problem here is, and that is if you take a, a, a look at the statistics, the, the Guttmacher Institute that tracks abortion data says that 70% of aborting women identify themselves as Protestant or Catholic. And you know as well as I do that when people check a form, on a, check a, a box on a form, that really says a, a lot of different things. Uh, a young woman could be going in there, filling out a form, checking the, the Protestant box because she was raised in church as a young girl but never gave organized religion a, a thought for years and years. Whatever that 70% number means, it means that 70% identify one way or another as religious or more specifically with religious groups that would see abortion as a, a sin. In one way or another, it seems to show that eliminating abortion begins with dealing with it in the church. Here, here's the other thing as Christians, and I think that Piper and Sproul would, would agree here, and that is that in the Christian life, there's, there's balance. It's like walking on a road between two ditches. Some, more than others, were prone to, to fall off one side or the other. On one side, we, we tend to fall off into the social justice side, and the other side, it's the, the spiritually detached side. But the scriptures should keep us in the middle. The, the world needs to know that abortion is an act of violence that kills a baby. And the world must also know that there is one name under heaven that is given that all might be saved. In other words, as Christians, we're not sometimes working to end abortion and other times working to spread the gospel. Francis Chan, or Francis, uh, Schaefer, not Chan, Schaefer put it this way. He said, in the flesh, we can stress purity without love, or we can stress love without purity. We cannot, we cannot stress both simultaneously. To do so, we must look moment by moment to the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Without that, a stress on purity becomes hard, proud, and legalistic, Likewise, without it, a stress on love becomes a sheer compromise. 
spirituality begins to have real meaning in our lives when we begin to exhibit simultaneously the holiness of God and the love of God. We never do this perfectly, but we must look to the living Christ to help us do it truly. So with that foundation, I want to take just a, a time here that we have remaining and offer uh, what, is, what is, amounts to a, a biblical mandate concerning abortion. And, and there is somewhat of a, a problem here. And that is when we start to look at the Bible and we, we read it from, from Genesis to, to Revelation, we see some uh, 14,000 different words in the Bible and abortion is not one of those words. There are a host of things that are spelled out in the Bible, but abortion isn't one of them. But yet there are also, we recognize that there are a lot of things in the, that the Bible speaks to that aren't addressed specifically. And we take the Bible and we bear it on those subjects. In fact, among those who do their best to live by the Bible, the question of whether abortion is right or wrong, I think should be obvious, but the more uh, apt question is whether God expects us to do something about it or not. The fact is there are a lot of Christians that are convinced that abortion is somewhat of a side issue. It's an issue where good Christians can disagree that there should be more, that there are or could be more important issues like evangelism or other justice issues. I guess the, the case I want to make here is that the Bible insists that we do something about abortion. And I'll say this as well, that everything that we'll say here this morning doesn't strictly apply to abortion but a host of other things, right? Christians aren't a, a one-trick pony. Abortion isn't the only issue, but I would make the case that it is an issue that cannot be dismissed. And I think you'll see that as well. So let's just, let's just take some, some different words. Uh, first of all, let's start with the word religion. We can start here by asking what is, what is religion? The book of James is a practical book. It gives a definition of true religion in James 1.27. There we read, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A very concise definition of, of true religion. It makes it clear that those in, in desperate circumstances are ones that should be helped. James lists here orphans and, and widows. And the question is, are those examples that he is giving or is he intending to give an exhaustive list? In the next chapter, though, James seems to add the poor, to that list, and I would suggest that James is making a point here by giving a representative list of examples of those in severe distress. The prophet Jeremiah says something similar in Jeremiah 22.3. There we read, thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong nor violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. So that the passage is quite similar to the passage in, in James. And, and we read that 
or we realize or recognize that in the world that, that both James and Jeremiah were, were living in, that the prospects for orphans and, and widows was very bleak. And in fact, often the survival of, of orphans and, and widows depended on the action of God's people. And I think that's the point. I think in both of these texts here are, are people that are without natural providers. Parents on one side and their children or relatives on the other side. And things are desperate for them. They're daunting uh, prospects. And as, and as the prospects for the widow or the, the orphan were, were not good, the prospect for the unborn is, is much worse. John Piper says this way, since God commands believers to care for children whose parents have been killed, he would also have us care for children whose parents want them killed. True religion, we often hear, is about relationship, not religion. And I get that statement and, and what people are trying to communicate. I think perhaps they're trying to communicate with that statement much the same thing as James and Jeremiah. And that is that, that true religion is, it's reaching out to those in, in distress. It, it sees that as essential. So while true religion identifies those in distress, and while we all agree that the circumstances surrounding the distress is, is different in a lot of cases, so in, in one case, for instance, one needs shelter or food. Not to, to downplay this, it's crucial. People li people's lives depend on, on uh, shelter and, and food and people helping that way. But in other cases, the distress might be the fact that people are about to be killed. And instead of the action of providing food and shelter, it would be rescue the one that is about to be killed. In Proverbs 24, 11 and 12, we read this. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Now, the interesting thing about this proverb and, and proverbs in, in general is that we don't really have... The, the mind of, uh, of the person uh, writing it here and, and what he was thinking about or the certain biblical injustice that he had in mind. What we have here is a, a general statement or a general guideline as to what God's people are to do in the face of violent injustice. I find it interesting that in verse 12 that the author anticipates that people will deny that they had any knowledge of what was going on. In other words, they were making an excuse for not doing anything. And the point is that the Lord will render to each according to their work. And in this case, it's a lack of not doing what they should have been doing. There is a, there's a show on, on Netflix. It's called uh, Manhunt. I watched that. It, it, it's a story of the, the Centennial Park bombing in the Atlanta Olympics in, I think, 1996. When I watched that, I didn't know anything about the, the story. I didn't know anything about uh, that, that bombing. But there was a, a guy who was, who was really the, the hero in the, the situation. 
And he saved a, a lot of people who were, and, and he ended up getting blamed for it for a long time. His life was totally ruined. And it wasn't just public opinion. It was actually those who were supposed to have justice as their priority who pointed the finger at him and swayed public opinion. He needed to be rescued. He needed law enforcement to care about justice. He needed a lawyer that, that believed in him. Having these on his side was his only hope. There are guys like, like this guy, Richard Jewell, that need rescue, that need advocates. But we also must be aware that there are actually people among us in America that are heading to, to slaughter. The act of abortion is a great injustice in our day. Thousands of times a day, people are slaughtered, and this has affected about every community in our nation, whether we recognize it or not. I mean, I, I would greatly applaud the, the vision for plus one in our community. It would have been easy for people to, to say something like, you know, these, these, these guidance centers like this, these pregnancy advocate centers are, are needed, but perhaps not in our small town in, in South Dakota. It is an issue in some places, but it's not here. But the fact is it is. Proverbs 24 uses the word slaughter, a word that is defined as a violent or brutal killing or killing of a great number of people. And abortion fits both of those definitions. It's hard to imagine having a, a body literally torn to pieces as not being a violent action. A woman by the name of Lila Rose, she's a, a pro-life advocate. She wrote on Twitter January 7th, just a, a simple three words. Abortion is violence. And of course she got a, a lot of replies, most of which were not so nice. Some of even suggesting that her rhetoric was more violent than the, the abortion itself, which is, which is kind of stupid because even you, you read about abortion, you look at pictures, and if you, you take a rational look at this, it's, it's slaughter. It's the violent killing of a, of a person. Of course, that fits the other definition of slaughter too. 62 million is a great number of people. And then we start thinking about specific examples, right? Proverbs 24 is a general command to intervene on behalf of those who are being killed. In, in Exodus chapter one, we have a, a very specific example of this command in practice. In the first chapter, we read that the Egyptians feared the Israelites and they feared that they would become uh, more in, in number and overtake them. So they decided to, to deal shrewdly with them, we're told. They put heavy burdens on them. These people were greatly oppressed. They made them slaves. And then in, in verse 15, we read this. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives of whom was named Sephira and the other Pura, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstone, and if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. The fact is, when we read this passage and we keep on reading, it's extremely clear that, that not only 
were these Hebrew women doing the right thing, but God was pleased with their action. I love the, the phrase there that, that says they, they feared God. We find that a, a couple times in, in Exodus 1. The, the women there realized something about life, that it, it wasn't the gender of the child that was the issue. The issue was the fact that, that God created life and they didn't have the right to take it, but they also had the responsibility to protect it. The clear implication from the passage is that those who fear God will do everything in their power from keeping mothers from killing their babies. In Psalm 82, 3 and 4, it's a, a parallel passage to the one we read in, in Proverbs 24. It says it this way, Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Again, we see that God's people are to run to the rescue of those who are vulnerable and those who are threatened. Another way this could be applied, and, and we said that, of course, these passages aren't only about abortion, but other things come to mind here. And we think back of how much of a, a large portion of the American church should have joined the fight against slavery and, and segregation, sins that clearly have lasting effects in our country and our world. And, and even though that situation uh, isn't, isn't remedied, it, it has seen a, a move in, in the right direction. But we could go back and ask the same question today about the preborn. Why don't more Christians come to the active defense of unborn children? And I, and I have a suspicion. It's because, and I know I'm included here, that we have too narrow of a view of what it is to be the neighbor of others and what it means to love that person. Here's what I mean. I mean that we are content because we believe that it is enough not to participate in injustice, but then not participating, we're not doing anything either. And I, I use the word injustice, and I'm aware that that word has taken on a lot of baggage lately. We hear, for example, um, reproductive justice or injustice a lot. And we hear those by people who are advocating for abortion. So it isn't the, the child in, in the womb that's being treated unjustly in abortion, but the woman who must carry the child to term who has been treated unjustly and is in Entitled to justice. Like I said, the, the term is taken on a lot of baggage, but when I speak of injustice here, I'm talking about those who cannot defend for themselves and are being murdered in the womb. There was a, a German pastor who was imprisoned for his opposition to Hitler, and he said, Christianity in Germany bears greater responsibility before God for the Holocaust than National Socialists, the SS, or the Gestapo. He said this because he understood that those who are believers are accountable to, to God and others are, are blind in their unbelief. Yes, those other groups should have stood up for the defenseless. They should have not let those atrocities go on. But Christians know what it is to be rescued from certain destruction. Christians can't stand by when things like this are happening and turn a blind eye. 
and say, well, I'm not actively participating in it. And I think here we need to remember Luke 10, right? The lawyer there comes and, uh, to Jesus and he tests him and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And then Jesus turns to the, the law. He summarizes the, the Decalogue. He says, you, you love your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. And then you will have eternal life. And the, the lawyer then follows up with the question, well, who is my neighbor? At that point, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and the story is, it's called this because it was this man who at great cost to himself took care of a, a stranger who was dying on the road. A man who was ignored by everybody else around him. Was the Samaritan man in, implicit in what happened to the man on the road? Nobody cared for him anyway. Jews and Samaritans generally didn't have anything to do with one another, but this man cared for the stranger anyway. Of course, in, in the story, Jesus beautifully illustrates who the man's neighbor was and what it means to, to love somebody as one's neighbor. Perhaps this is something that we need to start thinking about as it relates to abortion. How are we, the, the good neighbor, to show love to the most vulnerable among us? There's another word to consider here, and that is the word sacrifice. You might think that we're going to talk about standing up for the preborn is going to cost you something, it's going to sacrifice you something, and of course that's true, but it isn't the kind of sacrifice I'm talking about. Listen to Leviticus 20, uh, verses 1 through 5 for a moment. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch will certainly be put to death. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death and I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut him off from among the people, him and all who follow him for whoring after Moloch. You know, some have, have read this and suggested that what was actually uh, taking place here wasn't child sacrifice. It was, it was something else. But if you go back and, and just look at uh, chapter 18, for instance, it, it talks about offering children there. And it, it seems to be very clear that what is in view here is, is some kind of child sacrifice. Some others have, have suggested, and I think this is interesting, that the people of Israel, where people would come into Israel and they were trying to be like the other nations around them. They were so swayed by what other nations were doing that they tried to, to adopt these same practices and, and mix it in to the, the Jewish faith. And, and when they do that, they would offer their, their child as a sacrifice, but they were actually trying to, to do it to, to Yahweh, or actually at least they were trying to offer their, their children to, to Moloch and, and believe that perhaps they were the, the same somehow or, or whatever. In Jeremiah 19, we, we see a passage that actually could support this idea. In verses four through six, we read, 
because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the, the nor the, the people of Judea have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents and have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come from my mind. Therefore, behold, said the days of the Lord uh, the, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Tempheth or Valley of the Son of Himmon, but the Valley of Slaughter. So it, it seems as, as though when you, you read that, that some might have thought that those actions, the child sacrifice, were sanctioned by God. And God here is saying, wait a minute, I did not command this. I did not decree it. In fact, such thought of offering a child as a sacrifice could never even come from my mind. That kind of thing would never please God. Something that set God apart from the foreign gods that were said to be greatly pleased by child sacrifice. Whatever the case is here, it is made very clear that God does not delight in the death of children. Just because uh, they, they're offered to, to these other gods, God does not delight in that, or he does not delight in the offering of these children in his own name. This kind of thing offends gods, the slaughter of the innocent. The text speaks about the places being full of innocent blood. And the place would then be known as the valley of slaughter. The Old Testament accounts of child sacrifice give us a, an uncomfortable parallel to abortion. Of course, the gods have changed. The gods are involved or are different than people were giving their child to, to these other gods, Moloch, Baal, uh, to appease them for whatever reason. But today it's in the name of convenience or personal autonomy or whatever the, the case may be. In Leviticus 20, we go back to that text and we notice in that passage that people that turned a blind eye to what is going on when children are being sacrificed are in the same shape as those who do the act. There's responsibility for those people around. I have one more word, and that's the word balance. You know, it's easy to hear messages on the, the sin of abortion and become somewhat indignant. One of the problems, I think, in the current abortion debate is that there is a, a group of people Christians, Republicans, whoever it is, that are very indignant over the sin of abortion. And the other side looks at that and they, they see them as, is that is the only sin that they're angry about. It's the only sin that they, that they care about. Now, on, on one hand, I don't think that's a, a fair criticism because in a conversation or a sermon about abortion, to say, well, all you care about is abortion, um, even that, that might be right, but we need to recognize if, if that's the subject at hand, then that's what we're talking about. But, but here's, my, here's my point. 
it's easy to become upset and angry and unruly over the sin of others, but it's difficult to become indignant about the sin in your own heart. John MacArthur said this. He says, the greatest sin in the world is the violation of the greatest commandment in the world, which means that every second that we fail to love God with all that we have, that all that we are and our neighbor is ourself, we ourselves are guilty of the greatest sin. I want to bring this up here at the, the end because we've, we've really asked for, for Christian zeal when it comes to, to abortion. That there's this biblical mandate to, to get involved, but at the same time, we should understand that, that what characterizes Christian zeal shouldn't be arrogance, but it should be love. This whole conversation about sin and abortion, this great evil in America and around the world, the solution to it from Christian standpoint should be love. This sin that is so difficult for us to, to contemplate should point us to our own sinfulness and what's going on in our own heart. To places and, and times in our own lives in which we fail to, to love God and love neighbor with everything that we are. It's easy to point a finger at others to call out the sin of abortion. It's quite another to grieve over our own sinfulness, to repent and recognize that, that the mandate is that we be involved in this somehow, some way. We can be enraged over sin. We should be enraged over sin. But if it's always the sin of others and not ourselves, then we have a problem. Some might say, well, okay, I've heard, I've heard what you said, so I'm just going to take and step back and I'm going to work on myself. And then someday, perhaps, we can think about other things, but there's so much going on in my own heart, my own life. I'm just going to step away from everything. I'm just going to deal with me. And then someday I can think about my neighbor. I have enough problems. I have enough sins to deal with. This would be a good argument if Christ wanted you to deal with your sinfulness on your own, but that's not the case. The fact is, Jesus came, lived the perfect life that you didn't, and he dealt with your sin on the cross. One thing that should make us indignant about our own sin is that we continue to do that which for Christ died. Christ died for our sin, and there should be and therefore, we should turn and, and love him with everything that we are, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. But we continually fail, and we must continually come back to Christ, recognize what he has done for us. And also what he will do with it for others through trust and, and put their faith in him. We should also say that there is no sin that is big enough that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus. We were talking about hymns the other day in one of our, in one of our meetings. You know that, that hymn that speaks of blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins? 
it isn't a, a pleasant picture. It's not a, a pleasant picture by a, a long shot. In fact, we were talking about the fact that we don't, we don't think like that. We don't think in that kind of thing. But I was just thinking about that, that song. The believer is plunged beneath that flood that comes from his veins. I mean, it, so you have a, a flood of blood and the believer is being plunged underneath it. It sounds like a, a horror movie. <laughs> but the point of the imagery, the point is, is found in this line, and the sinner is plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. A, a refrain in the song that is, is repeated over and over. All of them. Every guilty stain, every sin is cleansed by the blood of Christ because there is no area in which the blood of Christ doesn't touch. You're immersed in it. Every sin. So that from a human being's perspective, those sins are, are unpardonable. They're unforgivable. Forgivable. But the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ has, has dealt with it, has, has cleansed it. Has thrown it as far as the, the east is from the west. There is no guilty stain left. And of course, this includes the sins of our past, whatever they may be, even the sin of abortion. At this point, we're gonna come together and we're gonna we're gonna come to the, the Lord's table together. This is a time for us, I think, to think about that word balance. To, to think about our own sin, to think about what Christ has done for us. We also recognize that Christ died for us so that we would in turn live, we would live our lives in a way that pleases him, that we would be free to, to love our neighbors as we should, free to put Christ first place in our life. The Lord's table reorientates us from, from selfishness to, to living outwardly. To say, Jesus Christ died for my sins so that I might live. Live in a way that, that pleases him. It gives us balance in our lives. It guards us from arrogance by pointing us to our own sin and what Christ has done for our sin. It gives us to the opportunity to repent. But it's also the, the, the realization that, that we walk away from the table with our head held high. In, in gratitude and in, in joy. And that spurs us on to, to holy living. Let me just make a, a couple things clear here. Even though we've been doing communion a little bit different with the, the pre-filled cups all together, and if you didn't get those, there's some in the, the back. You could probably raise your hand and somebody would even bring them to you. Um, if you didn't get those, but we've been doing the, the elements different. Um, take, take some time here to examine yourself. Like we just talked about, right? This time for, for balance. It's not a time to examine yourself to see if you're worthy. I assure you, you're not worthy. Your worthiness only comes from Christ who died on your behalf. But, but examine yourself, right? Is there sin in your life that you need to confess, that, to repent of? 
that you need to turn and, and live rightly? What, what about your relationships with others? Like we said, there's this a time to, to reorient yourself, to get your focus right, to, to put Christ in the, in the center and, and let Christ and the, the gospel shape how we go forward in forgiveness, in, in gratitude, in, in freedom to live the life that he wants us to live. Having said this, I will say, um, just to be clear, the Lord's table is for believers. It's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, we would ask that you abstain um, and, and not take it, that there's really no point in taking it. This isn't something that saves um, now, if you're aware of your, your sin, you know that you need uh, to be saved. You know that um, that's something that you need. Know that that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. And if, and if you desire that, I would love to, to visit with you about that and have that conversation. But taking part of this does not save you. I would also say to, to children that if you are a believer and understand what's going on here, you're welcome to participate. We just ask that you have that conversation with your parents. Um, you don't want to participate until you're ready. Um, having said that, let's, let's pray together and then we'll get ready to, to take it together.